Greetings, everybody. This is Nick Morgan, and I had an absolute blast chatting with Ryan today about how to succeed as a speaker and some tips on how to maximize your impact as a speaker. A great conversation. Listen in. Welcome to the World of Speakers podcast brought to you by Speaker Hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks. You'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money. Here's your host, Ryan Foland. All right, welcome back to another episode here with me, Ryan Foland, and I am super excited today. Normally I'm excited. Today I'm super excited because I've got Nick Morgan on the line, and he, if you haven't heard of him, by the end of this, you will be a fan like I am and pick up his books and use his quotes and follow him on Twitter and all that good stuff because truly, I think, Nick, you are one of the people out there that is crushing it when it comes to helping people become better speakers. So how you how are you this morning, this afternoon or evening, whenever somebody's listening in? Exactly. Uh, it could be any time of day or it could be the middle of the night if you're an insomniac. I'm great. Uh, thanks. Uh, <laughs> Excellent. And uh, look, really looking forward to this chat. Yeah. Well, the first part of this show, we always like to just get to know who you are. And some people might be intimidated by the amount of information that you've put out there into the world. Did you? <laughs> Why don't I just stop now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, hey, all right. Just go to his website and uh, check it out from there. No, but really, you've created such an amount and such a breadth of content. Did you grow up knowing that you would become the communication guru that you are today? Uh, well, n- not exactly. No, I, I just wanted to be a writer and, and write about this stuff and write novels and smoke a pipe, wear a beret and, and look cool in French. And and a lot of that's uh, very difficult to do these days. Uh, for those of your listeners who know something about how hard it is to make a, a living as a writer, there are a few people who can do it, but not many. So I branched out into other things, speaking and coaching, and, and I keep writing. Well, what was it that got you excited about writing? Was there anything in particular? I mean, that's kind of a behind the scenes sort of thing. Were you really into books as a kid and or something that you read. What was that inciting incident for you? Yeah, I was a shy, nerdy kid and loved to read and just entered in the world of books whenever I could. And then I had a, a series of incidents when I was 17 that kind of confirmed the direction uh, my life would take. The most important of which was I was uh, tobogganing with some friends after Christmas that year my 17th year, and I fractured my skull. I crashed into a tree. Uh, yeah, tobogganing, not a good thing to do. So any of your <laughs> listeners who are listening, please play safe. <laughs> Just wear a helmet when you toboggan, right? Because right? <laughs> yeah, they don't have brakes. <laughs> when you're 17, you kind of underestimate the importance of brakes. I thought it was cool to go fast. Oh, yeah. So I went really fast, crashed into a tree, fractured my skull. I was in a coma for about a week. And uh, during that week when I was out, I actually technically died for about 15 minutes. So wow. I, uh, you're talking to somebody who's come back to life. I'm very lucky to be on the planet thanks to an amazing neurosurgeon who saved my life. Uh, but when I woke up, uh, they they give you a, a test to see if your brain's still functioning. And it's a sort of standard IQ-like test, made a little easier because you've been whacked on the head. Yeah. <laughs> and I, uh, I passed the test fine, but there was something else wrong that I couldn't articulate. I didn't really know what was going on and they don't test for it. So I went back to school um, with a big scar running down the side of my head and and a bandage and this kind of spaced out look. And all my friends came up to him and said, Nick, you look great. And I would say, thanks. 
because what had happened was I'd lost the ability to read people's body language and subtle cues oh. that indicate that they're, um, they're joking or they're being sarcastic or they're being ironic. Now, at age 17, virtually everything your friends say to you is either sarcastic or ironic. <laughs> so I was really clueless. Wow. And it took me a while even to figure out that, uh, that I was clueless. I was so, so far out of it. But I finally woke up to that something was wrong and, and started watching people and studying their body language in a desperate attempt just to get clued back into what was happening. And it took me about a year to retrain myself. But when I finally did, then I ended up with a lifelong interest in how communication works and body language and, and then all the further uh, studies of that that, that uh, you can undergo. So that was, that was how I first got interested in communications. Wow, that's a, a fascinating story from, from there and back all the way to necessity driving your interest for nonverbal communication. Yes. Now, when it comes to that, there's... I guess there are a lot of different studies and there's the classic one that, you know, about a very low percentage of communication just being actually what you say, but then there's other studies talking about how that study was out of context and whatnot. What coming from you, like, is there a certain piece of research that we can refer to when it comes to that age old question of the percentage of what you're actually saying versus how you say it? <laughs> yeah. Is there a, something that you, that you base it off of? Yeah, let's let's uh, drive a stake through the heart of that particular <laughs> vampire right now, okay. because that is a study that refuses to die. And there was nothing wrong with the original study; it's just misconstrued okay. all the time. What the study tried to determine was, let's say, uh, and I always use the example of. Uh, as a married man, when I go home at night, if my wife has texted me on the way home to pick up milk and eggs, let's say from the grocery store, and I forget. And I get to the door and I see her and, and suddenly remember I've forgotten to pick up the milk and eggs. And she's standing there and my wife is way too nice to do this. So we're just using her as an example. But right. she's standing there with her arms folded and a, and a kind of a frown on her face. And maybe she's tapping her foot. And I suddenly remember, whoops, forgot the milk and eggs. And I look at her and I say, how are you, hun?" And when I ask audiences what my spouse theoretically would say in response, all the married people say, fine. Because that's what you say when you're a spouse and you're asked, how are you, hon? And you're not actually fine. And so I say, okay, perfect example there. The words, the content says fine. Do you believe that or do you believe the body language? Yeah, the foot tapping is a total giveaway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The crossed arms, yeah, maybe the raised eyebrow. And I always say, unless I'm the world's stupidest husband, I quickly get the message. Right. Everybody chuckles. But they get the point, which is that, and here's what the study was trying to figure out when body language and content are not aligned like that. When you're saying one thing with your words and another thing with your body language, what happens is the body language always trumps the content. There's no contest. It's, it's not even a struggle. You just automatically go to the body language to decode what's actually being said. Now, what the study was trying to determine was what percentage of that body language, when those two things are in conflict, when content and body language are in, in conflict, what percentage of that body language comes from the sort of visual aspect, in this case, the crossed arms or maybe the scowl on the face, and what comes from the tone of voice. And so maybe it's the way the person says the word fine. Maybe there's an intonation there that sounds kind of cross. 
right? And so the percentages there are that most, about two-thirds of the information that we decode about body language come from the visual, and about one-third from the tone of voice. When we're trying to decode something that isn't consistent with the content. Now, why is that important? It's because we humans care about intent. What do other people intend for us? Are they friend or foe? Are they going to help us or hurt us? Uh, are they going to beat us up? Or are they going to shake our hands? Those are the kinds of things we're hardwired to care about very, very much. We're always decoding other people's intent. And the words are alone, uh, alone, as every grown-up knows, are not enough to decode people's intent. So we've learned over the millennia to look at body language for a better a better reading of intent. That's what we care about. And that's why we look at the body language. Gotcha. So yeah, it does get misconstrued because if people just group it together and forget about the context in which that study was done. So that's yes. good. I feel like we've, we have definitely stabbed that with a, a wooden spear right into the heart. Excellent. And there's one other important thing to get out of that, which is content matters. The whole point of communication is to get across some kind of content, some kind of intent to tell another person what you're thinking, feeling, you wish to do, you want them to do, right? So it's only when you're lying or your body language is saying one thing and your content is saying another that, that the study applies. But the whole purpose of communication is to get some content across. It's not to convey body language per se. We humans have evolved to use language and because it's much more subtle and, and nuanced and, and complex and able to convey much more interesting things than just body language alone. Now, have you dove in into the, like the next level of, of where we're going with communication as far as the technology that's surrounding us? Because it seems like it's adding a whole new emoji level or digital you know, vocal cords that people are able to go on. And it's all rooted in that core ability to understand what you want to communicate. But do you see um, some serious changes with the way people are communicating now with technology? Well, it's, it's an incredibly good timing on your part because I just finished a manuscript of a new book, which is called, to be called, The Virtual Communicator. Ooh. And it's about how we communicate in the virtual space. And I went into it doing some research, interested the topic, because as I went around the world talking about body language and communications, the first question I always got asked by audience members went something like this. I said, well, I really find this body language stuff interesting. Thanks, Nick. It's fascinating. But I manage a team <laughs> that works in New Jersey and Singapore and France, let's say. And I never see the other people that are working in those remote locations how do I substitute? What do I substitute? And how do I understand what they're actually saying to me if I can't see their body language, if I can't hear, uh, as it were, their body language um, as well? So how do I decode that? And how do I send messages to them if body language is as important as you say? So it was a great question. Hmm. And I thought, finally, when I got asked that enough, gee, I better write a book about this. And as I jumped into the research, I found something fascinating, which is that it's much, much worse than you think. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for uh, adding some a few lower decibels there in your voice, which just was a, that was an audio visual, wait, that was an audio body language transfer. <laughs> exactly. An oral cue, we call it, yeah. So uh, what happens is, and, and this happens in slightly different ways in email and text messaging. So the whole 
text-based forms of digital communication, but it also happens in uh, phone audio-based forms of communication like the podcast we're doing now, like the bane of just about everybody's work-life existence nowadays, the, uh, the webinar or the, uh, or the audio conference. Uh, how many hours have you spent if you're in the workforce listening to your teammates blather on about something that you don't care about in a, in a, in a regularly scheduled weekly team meeting, let's say, which is conducted via audio conference and a conference line. Yeah. And it's even to a slightly lesser extent, but to a really astonishing extent, it still is the case on video conferencing um, where we'd think we're getting all the visual information we need, uh, but we can talk about that later. But the, the main thing that happens, and it's most obvious in text, uh, and then there's a subtler form of it in audio conferencing, is that the place where we began talking about content versus body language Basically, what happens is the body language is all cut out in digital communication. And so the effect of that is that communication becomes much, much less interesting to us because it lacks the emotional component, which is what we care about, because that's how we read people's intent. Like, how much do you really mean this, Ryan? How excited are you about this conversation? You know, why should I care about this conversation? Well, if you tell me it's important, that's one thing. But if you really look like you're excited, and your body language conveys that import, that excitement, then I really believe it, all right? So all of that's cut out in digital communication. And so as a result, most digital communication is prone to misunderstandings and boredom. And humans, when you cut out audio information like that, what the brain science shows is that our brains hate to be deprived of that information. And so what we do is we make it up. Hmm. And that's why you're listening on an audio conference and you think that other person is saying something mean to you or is being snarky or is saying something sarcastic. And afterwards they say, no, I didn't mean that. I just, I was just kidding. And, but you think, ah, they're really, they're really dissing me. This is a something I have to get angry about, right? Uh, and it happens all the time. All of us, I'm sure, have had the experience of sending an email and having it get misconstrued. And the reason for that is because it's so hard to convey information, uh, sorry, emotion through these digital channels that we, we humans put it back in. We impute it to the other person. And usually <laughs> it's a negative imputation. We usually decide the person's teasing us or being angry at us or saying something mean. And as a result, endless misunderstandings when we're not being bored. And pretty much it, it puts everybody into your 17-year-old shoes right after you got out of the hospital. It's like the, yeah. that communication was cut out where you were trying to guess. And isn't it also the case from an evolutionary standpoint that when you start to think or make assumptions about whether it's people or emotions or processes, your brain then starts to try to find elements to support that, right? Absolutely. It's almost like that. The initial cause, like, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm running late. Bong. Now you're like, wait a minute, traffic slower. No, I need to go over here. Ah, it's just like it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? That's right. It's like when you you start thinking about what color should the new car I'm going to buy be, and you decide to buy a bright green car, and then you start driving around, and all you see are bright green cars everywhere. It's the uh, confirmation bias. It's that tendency yeah, to uh, to put in what's what not actually there, because the human mind loves to see patterns. And we love to predict what's going to happen next. That's how we humans have kept alive. I mean, remember, in an evolutionary sense, we're a very weak species. And we're at the mercy of all those lions and tigers out there and saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths of old and whatnot. And so what we learn to do, we evolved to do, is to become amazing prediction machines. We're always predicting what's coming next. 
And as you say, if there's information lacking, we hate that because then we can't make as good a prediction. So we just make it up. And that's why when I'm listening on the phone and I can't quite predict what you're going to say next because the emotions aren't clear, I can't tell whether you're angry or not, I make it up. I say, okay, you're angry at me. Well, <laughs> screw you. I'm angry at you. <laughs> and, then, and then the whole, the whole system goes, uh, goes down the tubes. <laughs> Yeah, then you're uh, you're on a downhill slope in a toboggan with uh, with trees that are in your path. Oh no, don't remind <laughs> me of that. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> okay, uh, I just do that in just, mm. but it, it's it's interesting. It's almost like you're really helping people to avoid that proverbial toboggan accident when it comes to their speaking and communication, right? Because I think people are running into trees, whether it's their relationships, whether it's just maybe not getting enough speed if they're up on stage and people being disinterested. So this idea of kind of the digital transition and this newer age difficulty, which is more difficult than we would ever imagine, yeah. how important is it to really sharpen those in-person speaking, communication, transferring emotions visually? Is it that much more important now? Yes. I mean, I suggest in the book a number of things that we can do to make the experience better. There are a couple of things happening. We're slowly learning how to exist in this digital space. And so to take a very simple example, everybody now knows that if in a text message or an email, somebody types you something in all caps, it means they're shouting, right? Right. Now, when where was the rule passed that that was the case? It just, it just sort of happened. It sort of evolved because it's so hard to get tone from email that we all just kind of cosmically agreed that, okay, so all caps mean shouting. And there are a few clueless people who still don't know that. <laughs> Get with the program, guys, because right, right. all caps mean shouting. And and that's a very – the point is uh, that that's what we're starting to do. We're starting to create those extra contextual signals so that we can read email better. Uh, and we do the same thing. And we're slowly going to do the same thing in audio conferencing and video conferencing. But it's, the other point about it is that's a very crude distinction. It doesn't give us much emotional nuance. I mean, either shouting or not is a pretty simple-minded level of, uh, of communication. So we need much, much more. And emojis are the next thing to evolve to help us do that. And the classic use of emojis, um, which is spreading, by the way, all the time, yeah. it used to be in the business world you weren't taken seriously if – used emojis in an email. It was considered too sort of frivolous or too text messagey or something. Now what I'm noticing is, especially in millennials, especially in younger people, they use emojis in email and business communications all the time. Yeah. And I think it's a good thing. Like even LinkedIn basically gives you an option to give a thumbs up, which is the easiest reply, right? It's like right. there's this visualization to it. Exactly. And what it shows is that there's no ambiguity there. If you write, instead of putting in the thumbs up, if you have to write something like nice job, then people start to wonder, did he say like, nice job, like he really meant it? Or did he say nice job sarcastically? Right. And he really meant he thinks I'm a jerk. And that's the exact problem. And that's why emojis are going to gradually become more and more common. They're putting back in what the virtual communications channel has taken out. So here's a, here's a situational question. You've got these younger millennials that are, uh, you know, they've grown up on these technology platforms and maybe we could argue that they're more savvy at the different types of leveraging it to communicate what they really want. Then on the flip side, you've got people that are in the older crowd that are, you know, just either trying to get up to speed or they're still generally confused about this new digital communication. 
But when it comes to speaking in front of a live audience, the younger crowd and the older crowd, it seems like they both have advantages and disadvantages. So I'm curious, what are those core components? Uh, you know, if you had to pick out of your hat of 101 tips, what are the top ones that will help bring the younger, more digitally inclined speakers to really crush it on the stage in a live IRL situation? Yeah. <laughs> and then the same type of uh, the same crossover to those people who are feeling more and more disconnected with the younger crowd because they're not online, but bringing them to that in front of uh, the millennial generation in a live opportunity on stage. Uh, what are some of those core things that will not change, but will bring both the young and the old together on a, on a path of better communication? Yeah. I love the question because uh both generations, I mean, we're, we're, we're dealing in generalizations here, but that's okay. Yeah. There are obviously exceptions all on the line, but both generations have a lot to bring to the party, and that's the fun thing. So the, the millennial crowd that you're talking about have given us authenticity and a kind of willingness to be vulnerable and a willingness to uh, tell it straight in a way that the uh, older baby boomers who learned to suck it up, I guess, at an early age or something, or maybe learned hypocrisy over the years – I'm not sure which. <laughs> anyway, um, it's, that comes less naturally to them. And so the CEOs of today who, who tend to be older can learn from the, from the younger crowd just how, how much all human beings want authenticity. We don't want marketing BS. Uh, we've had way too much of that historically. And, so, and that's, that's the kind of first rule of successful public speaking is find your authenticity, find something you can talk about honestly. If you're not prepared to be vulnerable and honest about it, then you really shouldn't be talking on stage. And then there's a big caveat that goes with that, which is that it's not enough just to stand up and be authentic. If you listen to a really true, unguarded, authentic conversation, say you overhear one in a restaurant where the tables are too close together and, and, and they're really small, right? And you hear the, the people next to you talking, that conversation would not go well on stage because it's too meandering. It's too unstructured. There's too much repetition. There are too many half-thought things that are said half out loud and, and then forgotten and the conversation moves on to something else. The next thing to understand about a speech is its structured conversation. It has to sound authentic, but it also has to be structured. And is that a bit of a paradox? Of course it is, uh, but that's just what you have to deal with when you're going to stand up in front of an audience and speak. And the, the audience wants authenticity, yes, but it doesn't want your just open your mouth and, and spew because it can't follow that. One of the things that we've learned over the years is that public speaking is a very hard way for audiences to get information. They forget most of what they hear. Uh, the studies show anywhere from uh, 70 to 90% of what they hear an audience forgets. Now that's a horrible statistic. If you think about it, yeah. that's a real ex exercise in futility. If you know in advance, well, I'm going to stand up and speak for an hour and the audience will remember 10% <laughs> of that. I mean, come on, that's horrible. So the question is then, all right, I've got to be authentic. I've got to structure it. I've got to structure it in a way that helps the audience remember uh, so that I'm not wasting my time and theirs. And so most of then the insights into successful public speaking, start from that premise that what I'm trying to do is make it simple and clear for the audience, but I'm trying to present the information in a way that's audience-centered rather than it's centered on me. And so 
for me, the great big Zen insight into public speaking, and it's really freeing in, uh, for speakers who get this, is it's not about you as the speaker. It's about the audience. It's your job to present information that they can understand in a way that they can understand it. And that doesn't mean talking down to them. That means presenting it to them in a flow which is easy for the audience to grasp. And I get into, that's my first book, I get into how you can do that in a way that, uh, that is audience-centered and easy for the audience to understand and retain. Hmm. And that, that's the type of universal that brings all these generations together. And I think that, you know, with social media, there is really a user-centric setup, right? Like, here's my profile picture. Here's what I'm doing. Here, look at me, look at me. And then they're almost validated by their communities of liking and commenting. So it, if you grow up in a, in a world where whatever it is that you are doing is validated by other people, that is difficult to translate to the stage. You might have this thought that here, I'm here, I'm giving the info, Cla- clap for me or, or like me. Wait, wait a minute. Why aren't you guys clapping? Uh, ah, and then they run off the stage, right? Yeah, it's the, uh, it's the, the social media trap of uh, everybody feels like they're way more interesting than they may actually be. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I guess that's where light, well, I mean, if you think about it, lights and, you know, music and all of those things that are typically used in a theatrical setting, those are really filters, right? Like you put a red light on somebody and it gives them a little bit more of a filter. You, you drone them out with a blue shade and then you pop with some music in the background and it like, <laughs> there are physical filters in the speaking sense, but, for the most part, it's usually <laughs> you and a microphone. I can see how that's a bit of a naked feeling. Yeah, it is. It's, it, and that's the quintessential reason why I've been writing now since 2007. I've been doing my blog on, on public speaking and, and why people keep coming back to read it. That and many other people's insights into public speaking because it is, it's a very difficult thing to do. It, a friend of mine used to say, back in the old days, that is the cave person days. There was only two reasons you'd stand up in front of a large crowd of people. Either you were going to be elected chief of the tribe or you were going to be a human sacrifice. And neither one of them was really good. (laughs) I love that because it gets at that feeling of, oh no, I'm I'm standing in front of 200 or 2000 people. That's terrifying. And, and you never get over that feeling of terror. And most of the, of the work that coaches like me do is involved in helping you cope with that terror in uh, successful ways, learning to manage it, learning to channel it, uh, learning to use it to your advantage and to realize the positive aspects of it. But it's never going to go away entirely. You just have to look for interviews with any famous uh, actor who's faced an opening night performance after opening night performance over many years. And and they will tell you they get uh, nervous uh, every single time. Yeah. The only exception that I know was... Uh, uh, maybe you've heard, uh, maybe your viewers or listeners will have heard of uh, the Alan Alda, the, uh, the former TV star, and, and uh, he was back in the day. Uh, he was sort of a baby boomer TV star, getting older now. Um, he's been in a number of movies. Uh, and I interviewed him on Stage Fright and some other things. And to my astonishment, he said he was only really paralyzingly terrified once when he was on stage in London and suddenly had this horrible feeling, oh my God, I, I'm going to forget my next line. And he just sort of stood there stuttering and panicked, looking at the audience and finally thought of something to say and then said, okay, so I'm all right now, right? And then his brain said, no, 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 you're going to forget your next line too. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently it was the worst night of his life. Uh, he got through it. 
And he says he's never been afraid since, but that's very unusual. Most people are, uh, are repeatedly terrified with public speaking and learn, as I say, how to manage it. I, I love the word terror, right? <laughs> that really, that really encapsulates it. So one thing I'm just listening to, and you've maybe mentioned a few times is this internal voice, right? The one that says, you're going to mess up your line. You're going to mess up the next one. How important is having control or being aware of the the self-talk, that internal voice, whether it's preparing for your speech on stage, because I think we all have that, but it's not really talked about as much. We really focus on what comes out of your mouth, but half the time you're speaking to yourself in addition to that. Yeah, I think it's incredibly important. And in my book, Power Cues, I devote a whole chapter to it because I think for anybody who's going to do a lot of speaking, a professional speaker or somebody who uh, speaks for their job on a regular basis. If you don't learn to manage that uh, voice in your head, you're in for a rocky, uh, tough road. And what I, what I tell people to do is to do the same thing that Olympic athletes and other peak performers do, which is basically create a little mental movie and soundtrack of you performing the task well. So they do this in the Olympics all the time. The the gymnasts and the skiers and so on and so forth, all the, all the various athletes, what they do is they create a mental a movie or image of them doing a successful routine. Because uh, if you don't do that, what happens then is doubt comes in. Uh, because anything you care passionately about and spend a lot of time on, of course you're going to have doubts. That's the way the mind works. And what you don't want is to be hurtling down the hill on an icy slope at, what, 90 miles an hour uh, and suddenly have your head say to yourself, "Uh uh-oh, you're going to put that leg wrong because as soon as you think that, you do, (laughs) right? And then you're uh, rolling down the hill and you've lost the run and maybe broken your leg. So not a good thing. So, uh, And so the skiers and and the others know they have to create positive uh, mental images of themselves doing well. And I say to speakers, it's the same terror, basically. It's the same fear that your mind's going to play tricks on you. And so you have to take charge of your mind and create that positive mental image of yourself doing well, walking on stage confidently, giving the speech, having the audience react positively. And the way to do that, to start that dialogue is every single time your mind says, oh, this is going to be bad. You've got to say, no, I've prepared. I'm ready. Whatever your particular mantra is, you've got to repeat that to yourself to cut short that argument with yourself. And what's fascinating is if you talk back to that little voice that's telling you that it's going to be disastrous, you'll find that the voice goes away. It doesn't happen immediately. It takes some discipline, takes some uh, stick-to-itiveness. But if you do, eventually that voice will go away. You know, I'm, I've always been motivated to get more in touch with that inner voice. And I know meditation is a big part of it. So I'm even more motivated now than ever to have those conversations and continue to, to, uh, to show <laughs> whichever person's on my shoulder as the boss. I think that's, that's great. I don't, I don't believe we talk enough about that. And we talk more about what co- the words come out of your mouth. But it's kind of the chicken and the egg. If you can get in the right headspace, you know, the egg that you're going to give up on stage is probably less rotten. Yeah, that's right. You, you think about the, the voice, uh, the human voice is, uh, is immediately undercut by that kind of terror. And then what shows up on stage or what people hear on stage is that kind of shaky sound, which of course sounds worse to you because you're inside your head. Right. But that's ultimately the physical manifestation of that little critic inside your head saying, it's going to go down the hill fast here. Watch out. 
you're not going to be great. And then the voice, your voice that comes out isn't the one you want to. It isn't strong. <laughs> it isn't confident. It isn't that one that can take charge and win the day. So it's a tragedy. I hear strangled voices all the time from speakers on stage and I want to grab them and take them backstage and say, no, you should have worked on this beforehand. You can do better than this. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of winning the day and getting on that stage, you know, I, I like to play around this concept that in a attention deficit society, there's nothing more difficult than getting someone's attention, whether it's to be a presenter on their stage, whether it's just to an audience member who's paying attention and I play around with a pun that like in order to get people to pay attention, right? Somebody has to pay for that attention to happen. And so how do you help people on the path to monetize their message? And again, it's not the let's get aggressive and teach people how to sneakily get by or get to a $20,000 honorarium, but it's like there, I'm learning there is a process and I'm finding the process that I'm going through. But from your experience, you know, very technical background, how do you help people get up there and deliver that same message that one person can't get paid for and another person ends up getting paid uh, very well for? Yeah, there are several great questions in there. Uh, one of them is one I get asked all the time, which is, so is my topic original enough that uh, you know I can get paid for this as opposed to as opposed to somebody else? And I usually say to them, surprisingly, if you tell the stories that you're telling, and you talk about that topic that you care about in a way that is real to you, is authentic to you, then nobody else can tell that story. And so it's not the case that you're reinventing leadership, but you are talking about it from, let's say, but you are talking about it from your point of view and with your story. And there's nobody else who can say that. You're the only one who's lived your story. So originality is less important in a funny kind of way than telling the story well. And that's that's where uh, we help people, which is really figuring out how is it that I can talk about the stuff that I care about in a way that grabs the audience and doesn't let go. And you're absolutely right. People these days have a thousand demands on their attention, way more than we had even a decade ago. I mean, the, the whole iPhone nightmare of uh, for a speaker <laughs> is standing up there and watching all the heads disappear and go to the iPhones thinking, right. oh, my God, I, I, I didn't grab them is fascinating. And so we now think there's this kind of epidemic of people unable to pay attention. But on the other hand, those same people will come in to work on Monday morning and say, yeah, I binge watched Game of Thrones all weekend. It was fantastic. Right. So this is somebody who claims they're ADD or they're afraid that their audience is ADD, and yet they'll spend 12 hours watching a show. Why? Because that show is full of great storytelling. Mm. And so that's the place where we always start uh, with our clients is let's turn this into a great story. And if it's a great story and grabs the, uh, the audience, then you'll never have to let go. And that's the key. And just to give a very simple example, uh, I did a blog post uh, maybe about eight months ago, not quite a year ago, in which I said, here are three things that you shouldn't start with as a speaker if you're worried about this ADD world. Don't introduce yourself. Don't give an agenda. And don't do chit-chat. And I got a call from a very nice guy who's a very successful speaker, and he was laughing. And he said, I do all three of those things. Can you help me? And we looked at a recent video of his talk, and he had spent the first 11 minutes of his talk saying, hi, I'm so-and-so. 
Uh, anybody here from Dubuque out there in the audience? Oh, great to see my old friend Bill over there. Nice. That's chit chat. That's the kind of stuff people do when they're nervous. You're right. right? And, then, and then after about three or four minutes of all that, he told the audience who he was and he chit chatted about Dubuque. And then he finally said, now here's what I'm going to talk about. And so 11 minutes in, he still hadn't actually started his talk. Wow. And what I said to him, very simple, and, and what your audience can do immediately, so it's sort of a very simple, immediately practical thing you can do, is think about a James Bond movie. How do they start? And when I ask people that, well, they say, well, yeah, they start with uh, cars and guns and chases and motorcycles and exactly. explosions. Yeah. And- yeah. And you get about seven minutes of that. You're completely hooked. And then what happens? And then it rolls the credits. Then it rolls the credits. And yeah. And the credits are stupid, right? They're those waving girls in the kind of filmy uh, scenes. And the, the Yeah. Like the, the gunshot captured, like the frame that kind of like closes yeah. in and then somehow opens up and things are falling. And <laughs> yeah, I remember as a boy is at about age 12 being thrilled with those credits, but not anymore. You know, they, we, we recognize as right. grownups that they're pretty silly. But the point is that the movie survives that because it's just delivered to you seven minutes of great entertainment, a whole lot of expensive explosions and, uh, and really valuable cars have been blown up or people have been killed or whatever. You can't take your eyes off it, right? So, so I say this same analogy works for speaking. Don't start by introducing yourself. Can you imagine if a James Bond movie started with Daniel Craig coming out on the screen going, hi, I'm Daniel Craig. You're about to see a James Bond movie. It's going to be really yeah. cool. We're going to have explosions. We're going to have death. We're going to have cool villains. You know, I mean, it would be ridiculous, right? So the point is, don't start with that stuff. Don't start with an introduction. Don't start with an agenda. Nobody cares if it's an hour long. We can live without an agenda. And most of all, don't start with chit-chat because audience sense that right away. And over and over again, when I'm sitting at a conference watching speakers and they're doing the chit-chat thing to make themselves feel more relaxed, um, then I see audiences surreptitiously getting out the cell phone thinking, I can do one more text because he hasn't really started yet. Or I can do one more email. I can check to see how things are back at the office because the talk hasn't really started yet. And yet, if you... And I've seen this over and over again with speakers that I've coached to come out and just launch right into a story right from the beginning. It was a dark and stormy night. Yeah. (laughs) Whatever the story is, then the audience is engaged right away. So what I like about this is, is it really does also help to differentiate yourself from that next person who's talking about leadership. Because a big part of applying for talks or uh, for, you know, getting that paid gig People are going to do their due diligence, especially if they're dropping five, 10 grand to bring somebody. And so yep. if the videos that people are watching are 11 minutes of mar, 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 hello, hi, chit chat, here I am, this is what we're going to do, that's not going to translate to an exciting performance. So I, I like that your tips of getting people to pay for you to help people pay attention is just solely focused on, you know, crushing it when you're on stage, because that seems to be the biggest barometer of your likelihood for success and getting booked and getting speaking gigs is really being that communicator that wows people and leaves them with more than 10% of their content after the fact. Yeah, absolutely. There, I always say to, to people who, who uh, call me up and, and ask for, for help in developing a speaking career, I say that there are three things you have to do really, really well. And it's even more true today. What's happened in the last couple of years is that this professional speaking business, the paid speaking business, has gotten more and more competitive. Uh, the speakers are better. Uh, the The audiences are more demanding. Uh, part of it's TED. 
Ted has really raised everybody's game. Yeah. You can see great speeches on, on your computer just by Googling uh, leadership or just going on to Ted. So the game has been raised on everybody. And uh, there are really three things now that you have to get absolutely right uh, to be a successful speaker. The first one is you've got to have a killer speech. And that means none of that, none of that babble for the first 11 minutes of the speech. So the speech has got to kill right from the start and it's got to be great. And the real test of that is do you get referrals? Hmm. Because that's still the best source of your next gig is somebody in the audience going, you know, that was so great. We should get it in at that other place that I belong to or that other club or that other association or that other company I've heard of. Or they'll get asked by a friend of theirs, hey, how was that speaker that you heard about? It was great. You should get them into your company. So word of mouth speeches have got to generate referrals. That's the first thing. The second thing is that you've got to prove that you're a thought leader in some way. Uh, Traditionally in the speaking world, that's been by writing a book. Now that's kind of opened up and there are other ways besides writing a book to prove your expertise, to show that you are a thought leader in this space, to prove your authority. Uh, But the book is still the kind of gold standard. And so you ought to think about that, at least for the long term. In the short run, there's a lot of online stuff you can do, blogging and that kind of thing that that can establish your expertise. But the first thing people are going to do when they think about hiring you for real money, as you say, they're going to do their due diligence. So they're going to Google your name and they're going to see what comes up. And if there's nothing there that, that says this guy's an expert in topic, whatever it is, then they're not going to hire you. Mm. And then the third thing is you've got to get word of mouth going about you. You've got to create some buzz. We call it creating community. You've got to get people saying, hey, we should get Ryan in to speak because he's awesome. It sounds less convincing when you call up somebody and say, hey, you should hire me to speak because I'm awesome. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> we don't really believe that kind of pitch anymore. And the returns on that are very, very low. That doesn't say you shouldn't do it, but you got to have a really uh, tough uh, hide to be able to keep doing that because you're going to get, what, 100 rejections for every one nibble that you get if you do cold calling. Yeah, versus the edification will open up the doors all, all day long for sure. Exactly. And if, if other people are saying great things about you, then those invitations are going to roll in. So you really need to crush all three of those things. You need to have the killer speech that gets re- referrals. You need to have some kind of proof of your expertise, thought leadership, we call it. You need to have something out there that says you do know what you're talking about. And then the third thing is you've got to start a community going. You've got to start talk about you. And in a way that I believe that brings in a community that asks genuine questions. So it's not all just you going, me, 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 I'm great, hire me to speak, but you actually get people debating about an issue that you're passionate about. I think that's the real test. And also it's the thing that will sustain you over the over the long haul of trying to establish that kind of speaking career, is if you really care about it, you do care about the conversation, you do want to hear other voices and hear what they have to say, then you're going to be in that game for real. And people are going to start responding to you and talking about you and putting you forward as a speaker. Wow. So that's what it takes. Well, Nick, I told you I was super excited when I started, and now I'm super stoked that this is finished, but I'm also super looking forward to to seeing you online and continuing. Uh, I've been checking out your Twitter. That's where we actually initially, uh, where I reached out to you at. And so I'd encourage people to follow you on Twitter. I love your little, very simple, good speakers do this, great speakers do this. Isn't it? I've been dribbling those out. I'm glad you, I'm, I'm glad you like those. Yeah. yeah, those are fun to do. It's like, 
what one thing can I say today? <laughs> yeah, especially with the new 280 characters, it's like, I still want to go back to this, like, give me less, less is more. And so, yeah. so you'll see me uh, retweeting those out pretty consistently. And hey, what, what great foundational advice. You've got the three things to have a killer speech, to prove that you're an expert, and to create community eventually with the almighty word of mouth. I still really think that the concept of the internal voice is so important to focus on as well as the external and then just all of this brain science that goes into it. I think the more people get excited about the science behind speaking, the more they'll get crazy interested like a 17 year old who has a new reason to learn how people are actually communicating with each other. That's right. Cause when they say, Hey Nick, you look great. They don't mean it. <laughs> <laughs> hey Nick, well you did great. This was great. And hopefully you can tell by my excitement. Yay. <laughs> oh wow. That was really great to chat with you. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Great questions. Hey, well, everybody who's listening to this, tweet us both up and let us know what you liked and let us know how you're getting to your goals to create that community that will spread the word of mouth because you're an expert so that you can make a difference with whatever your message is. This is Ryan and I've got Nick here. Check out past episodes, check out future episodes and follow Mr. Nick on Twitter for his little, almost less than sentence, amazing insights. So Nick, this has been a lot of fun. I look forward to connecting more and maybe we'll share the stage some sometime together. That'd be great. Uh, great to meet you in person. Thanks so much. All right, thanks. All right, take care.